Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. So this is a great job. And one of the great aspects of this great job is the opportunity to email the people you'd like to meet out of the blue and pretend you're doing them a favor. (laughs) So I was all over it when I heard that you and Ashley had written a book called Genome Odyssey. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. I knew that Ewan was a cardiologist from Stanford and one of the leaders in the field of cardiogenetics and that he had worked with some of the best genetic counselors in the business and that they thought the world of him and that he was Scottish. So I figured there's probably the accent. That's a selling point on a podcast all by itself. So I I got the book and scheduled the interview uh, in the other order. And then I read the book and the bio. And so let me be less slightly less casual about Dr. Ashley's incredible resume. Um, He's the director of the Clinical Genome Program and the Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease at Stanford. He has a passion for rare genetic disease and was the first co-chair of the steering committee of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. He is a co-founder of three companies, Personalis, Deep Cell Inc., and SVEXA. I'm going to have to help me on that pronunciation in a second, Ewan. And he was recognized by the Obama White House for his contributions to personalized medicine and in 2018 was awarded the American Heart Association Medal of Honor for Genomic and Precision Medicine. He was appointed Stanford Associate Dean in 2019, and he plays the saxophone. Well, that's a lot. Welcome, Ewan. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really a big fan of the podcast and uh, really amazing to be here with you in person, kind of virtually in person. So what I felt reading the book, The Genome Odyssey, first, I cannot believe how much has happened in less than 20 years. And second, I was like, whoa, this guy had a ringside seat. I mean, I know that's not entirely fair as a metaphor because you were hardly a spectator, but I found myself um, over and over again saying, whoa, Nelly, you were involved with that too? I mean, it's been quite a ride, huh? It's been amazing. And I I know I take, I I completely agree with you about the ringside seat. That's the feeling I have. And that's one of the major feelings that drove me forward to think about trying to to write this book um, because I just... I've sat in these rooms with just incredible people. And on occasions, those are patients who are, who are benefiting, I think, from this technology. And other times, those are the inventors of the technology. And I feel sometimes like it's an, an almost like an out-of-body experience. How do I get to be there with these people doing this at this moment in time? It just feels has felt really exciting. And the, the ride over particularly the last 10 years and 12 years uh, has just, it's just been an amazing time. And I feel so lucky to be alive at this moment to experience that. Uh, and to to experience the the move of a technology from from its conception through to its implementation and and its its maturing in in a, in a way that it can help patients, real people with real problems. I mean, as a genetics person, that's what I felt reading the book was. I was like, oh my god, I forgot how recently none of these things existed. It was like getting an iPhone, and like the day after you have your iPhone, you're like. Life did not exist before I had my iPhone. You know, like that kind of, I can't remember anymore. My daughter once said to me, mom, how did you used to go out to eat? Like, how did you know where to go? And I was like, I don't know, honey. I don't know. We just went. It was crazy. But um, Right. How did we ever meet anyone? How did we ever meet anyone? She has all of these legitimate questions. Um, Right. But so what was striking to me, the book starts really with um, you walking in, another Stanford personality, Stephen Quake, who has his genome sitting there on the computer in front of him. And it was startling. And this was only 2009. It just really wasn't that long ago. But you had none of the tools that we had now. Yeah, I think that, that that's exactly right. And, and the memory is really strong. I mean, it's, it's as you say, it's not that long ago. Uh, but this was really be- before an exome was, a, was something that we... we you know, the, a word that tripped off our, our tongue, you know, it just wasn't something that was certainly, certainly wasn't available anywhere. And and the number of people who actually had sequenced their genome or had a full genome sequence on them in the world was a you know, handful of people, five, five or six. We were in the very earliest days. And, 
yeah, I remember walking into Steve's office and we were meeting about something completely different, like a genetic seminar. But he, he kind of pulled me over and said, hey, take a look at this. And, and on the screen was, was a call file, basically, for, for his genome. And I'm just, my jaw is on the floor. thinking, wow, this world is really changing. You know, because at the time we were used to sending a genetic test, and this was quite new, uh, you know, to a clear lab, and there'd be maybe eight genes would be sequenced by Sanger, and maybe that'd be like a hundred Sanger reactions um, in order to, to sequence the hundred or so exons from those eight genes. Uh, and that would take a few months, and then we would kind of double check the answers when they came back. But here in front of me was quite literally somebody's whole genome, and and just just this feeling that that we were moving into a new world, and that it was a world that we weren't really equipped to, to deal with. Yeah, I, I feel we like you, a, a you got a, a whale by its world. tail. You know, that was that that kept thinking you caught a whale by its tail. Really? Yeah, it felt, it felt a bit like that. Yeah, there was you know a big wave was coming, you know, after the whale as well, <laughs> and. Uh, and I think that was one of the first. I mean, I, I think since since coming to Stanford, I was, I'd really loved the, the the openness, the collaboration, the idea that medicine and, and engineering were so interlinked and intertwined here. But this was just a moment in time. I mean, I was working on on other things. Of course, genetics was part of my both clinical life and scientific life. But it just seemed that this was a thing that I, I should like put down the other tools and just focus on this because it seemed like the world was was going to need people focused on how to interpret the genome. I mean, in our cardiology clinic, we we would have a cholesterol test that we'd have five numbers in it, and we were, you know, fine with that. But suddenly, here was a genome that, depending on how you count, you know, has six billion uh, letters to deal with, um, and certainly several million variations. And, and how do we begin to, to realize the potential of that was, was the question. And, and my big answer was, go, go ask some very smart friends to join a team, uh, and let's see what see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had this whale and more whales coming, as you say. There's like, right. this is the first whale. <laughs> whales are coming. Yeah. You assembled this incredible team. More on that in a minute. And there was a, a variant that caused you to be concerned and some family history, not to give away the stories, but some family history that caused you to be concerned. But in this particular case, so I thought it was interesting how right from the beginning – there's two stories back to back. One is Stephen Quake, the question mark in his genome. Does he, doesn't he have an inherited predisposition to heart disease? Is this an issue? And mm -hmm. then his nephew, uh, who had died suddenly and without an explanation. And could his genome explain what happened to him? And at the end yeah, of the day, you ended up with good explanation for the person with the phenotype and a lot of questions from the genotype. Is, is that unfair? No, I think that, that that's very fair. I mean, in, in many ways, of course, this wasn't, you know, none of this was, was really planned. This was something we kind of stumbled into. I mean, I think Steve planned to invent a technology to sequence uh, genomes and, and did that. That part was planned. I think the idea that he would then essentially become my patient and that we would have him in, in clinic and he would be a patient with the genome was, was definitely not planned. And, and the response to that was, uh, you know, was, was clearly one thing. Um, but then of course the thing that, uh, we really had to go after when he had revealed that his, his cousin's son had died suddenly was, was to use this technology in the mode in which it's mostly been used in the last 10 years, which is to say, uh, to try to solve a rare disease conundrum. And, and so looking back, it turned out that the first two genomes that we looked at really were emblematic in many ways of both the current kind of current present and I think the, the near term future or in the application of, of genomes much more broadly. Uh, and so as I was thinking of, of telling the stories, I mean, on one hand, these were the stories, but, but they happened to fit neatly, I think, into these these two areas. And of course, you know, as we talk much later in the book, solving medical mysteries is something the genome turns out to be very good at. Uh, but in, in many cases, uh, we find an answer, maybe up to half of cases, we can find an answer depending on how you cut the, the numbers. But that leaves a, a number still on the table that are not solved. Uh, and I think in the case of, of Ricky's genome, the 19-year-old the, um, who died suddenly, we had some answers, but as is so often the case with genome analysis, our level of confidence that those were the causative variants was, was not really high enough to, to call it solved. 
But that runs right into the the numbers you're quoting and so on, into the the project this kind of spiraled into the undiagnosed diseases network, which even though it only solves a percentage of those cases, I would say most people feel is a huge success. I think so. I mean, I think that if, if you talk to the patients who, who come in or the patients who benefited much more broadly uh, from exome and genome sequencing to solve their undiagnosed diseases, I think you would feel that this was a very successful uh, application of, of technology and, and a very rapid ascension of, of a technology that has become dominant. Um, and interestingly, you know, there's a balance between <clears throat> how, how you, how, what you call a success in this field. And, and it's very different depending on who you ask. If you, as we have asked editors at journals and reviewers at journals on the scientific front, their view of success is actionability. <clears throat> you know, did this finding change, dramatically change the, let's say, the treatment for the individual? Uh, and usually they're focused on a therapy. And there have been these stories. We have some and there are plenty others that, that, your listeners will have heard before, where a new diagnosis leads to a, a, a kind of almost like a miracle cure, or at least a, a big arrow pointing at something that can dramatically help with, with the patient's uh, symptoms and signs. Um, but it, but that's not what you hear if you talk to the patients, because for the patients, it's it's very much about finding an answer first and foremost, and what that leads to is something that is is for tomorrow. It's for it's for another day. The sense of relief of being, we talk about this a little in the book, that this idea of being on undiagnosed island, the sense of isolation and the unique torment that goes with having an undiagnosed disease, because not only are you dealing with the symptoms and signs and all the challenges of having it, but when someone says, well, what's wrong with you, you don't, you don't have an answer. You say, well, nobody knows. And then you have to deal with a whole other conversation and you don't have a support group. You don't have other patients who suffer the same thing. You don't have a name. You don't know the shape and size of, of the enemy, as it were. And I think being relieved of that burden turns out to be a really major a benefit by itself. So simply naming the enemy uh, turns out to be a major benefit. And so I, I think for uh, for patients, uh, the genome brings that to them and to a very significant uh, majority of them. I, th- I think uh, in a, another story that you share in the book, Matt Might's story um, and the story of his son Bertrand, Matt voiced this so well, I think, on behalf of a lot of families, uh, that there was no such thing as uh, a, di- a diagnostic information that wasn't actionable. And it right. wasn't because he uh, misunderstood. It was, it was an expansion of the idea of actionability, I think. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think Matt has been a, a huge influence on, on what we have done over these years with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network in representing that patient view that uh, patients and families are, are not powerless. It's not this, I mean, we have this me- medical paternalism where, you know, the only thing that matters is what your doctors are going to do. That That's really not true. In fact, that may be the less important of the things that can happen because the family are the ones who are going to wake up every single day with this diagnosis in hand and say, what can I do today to help? And that's getting together people from around the world, that's raising money, that's finding the scientists who are interested, that's reading those scientific papers, that's even joining those scientific teams. It's raising, it's, it's building foundations like the, the Wilsey family that are also in, in, intertwined with, with that story, Grace Wilsey. You know, bringing groups together, there's so much that an individual with an answer can do that you just can't do when you don't know that answer. If you don't have the diagnosis, it's not, none of that is available to you. You're, you're, you're sitting isolated alone. You don't know who yeah. to talk to about. Yeah, and I think also this idea of the, the patients, it's like their problems begin and end in some ways for the doctor in in the medical visit, you know, like what are your complaints and what can we do about it? But it's an everyday thing. It's an every yeah. minute, everyday thing for patients when you have a let's in this case a, a sick child. And so my one of my sons uh, and his wife just had their first baby. Very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. But I see the incredible, yeah. yeah. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It's, the, it's everything they say. It's everything they oh. say. Yes, she's a delight. But what I was going to say was, you know, first-time parents, the amazing amount of information that's out there. Now, often, well, now in 2021, you're accessing it all virtually. But there's a whole community and world that teaches you how to parent and it's, it's, it's hard. Like, it's really hard. And a big part of it, 
know, remembering back when I had my own kids, is just somebody there saying, oh, yes, that happened to us too. Because you feel like you're crazy or you feel like you're in this very extreme situation. Like, and they're like, oh, no, totally normal. Just getting your life normalized gets yeah. you through so much. So if you're having an atypical experience with, with, with parts of that experience that most people can't relate to, you know, finding that community, I would think yeah, would be incredibly powerful. I think exactly, you know, how much more acute would those feelings be and, and amplified in that kind of situation from, from where you come from with, with dealing with a child or, or more than one child with a, an unknown syndrome to the point where you can then, where you have a group, you have your team, you have people to lead on, share those experience with, realize you're not alone, and then start to build, start to think, how do we attack this? I think it, it's just a, a very powerful a moment and, it, and it's something genuinely that... Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of skepticism about technology and medicine. And that's that's great. I mean, I happen to be a technophile, but I am very happy to engage with people who are skeptical. But I think there are real stories here, uh, and many, many of them, uh, that that really is, is impossible to argue with. So the other half of the Matt might story for me, not not that's not quite bleh. one other piece of the Matt might story for me is. Uh, that I think many people have pointed out is he, so he went from being told that his son had this extremely rare, um, they never seen it before, uh, condition, and it would be helpful to find other pe- other other children with uh, related conditions. They they they'd know so much more. They could confirm it and so on. And he was he's a computer science person. He had a blog. He was able to create a post that went viral and was seen all around the world and ended up drawing in all of this response where they found uh, in, I think, the first year, a dozen other children with uh, diseases that resulted from changes in the same gene. Um, And that was A, amazing, and B, right off the Mm -hmm. bat, there was a recognition, which you have in the book, in the story, of, well, you know, not everybody's in a position to do this. How do we make this happen? And there were so many times in this book where you came to a point and you were like, oh, I don't know how to handle this, but my friend down the hall is the world's expert on this. Or my friends at this lab somewhere else can splice this gene into a fruit fly and create a a model. Or we can sequence the RNA expression in this piece of tissue. So... I guess I'm asking, you know, there's a lot of that in these early stories where the stories are incredible, but they don't feel reproducible. So what do Mm -hmm. we have to do in general to be able to scale this sort of incredible medicine for the larger population? There's so much truth, I think, in in your question. And the first thing to say, though, is, is that that was a real driver for me to write the book. Obviously, the, the book begins and ends with patients, and, and that was my primary thought, was to spread their stories, because I just live in awe of what they go through. But equally, I think that science is, is a team sport, and there are just incredible people out there. And, and time and time again, in these early days of genome science, when we didn't have the answer, I, I could think of somebody who knew somebody, or I knew somebody who could help, and I reached out to them and I don't, nobody ever said no, you know, and I don't think I'm particularly that persuasive. I think it's the stories and the science and being on the cutting edge and, and, and often in many cases, literally helping someone in need. Uh, and there are stories there where five different teams, you know, three different industry groups came together and four different academic groups. And then we reached out to another group from Johns Hopkins or from Duke or Baylor or whoever, and, and people came together. So the first thing I'd say is that, that, that level of collaboration is reproducible. So I really do think that that is something that exists in the world. And I, <clears throat> I'm very much a glass half full person. I, I'm, I'm optimistic. But I think that if you ask, people people will come. And so I, I do think that we, we need to just get the communication flowing so people know who to ask. That's part of it. And there's been some great programs that have, have, that have been focused on how do you connect the right people uh, whether it's two patients with the same condition, two investigators who have the same gene pop up, uh, or as you say, like a fruit fly researcher and a zebrafish researcher who might both be able to model the same same thing, 
I think that we need to help make those collaborations and communications even easier. I think that we can quite literally help other patients. Not everyone is a computer scientist and not everyone can write code like Matt might. Not everyone can, um, can, can build a foundation like Matt Wilsey and, and Kristen and so on. But, but I think that most people can put together a Facebook page, especially with some pointers or a Wikipedia page and, and pull out some key factors. Most people can talk to their doctor about what are the unique aspects of this that would allow through search engine optimization other patients to find this. And we can build real tools that are easy to use for people to do that. And I think that um, we also, the, there's a whole policy part of this too. I mean, we need, I think that the, the data is in and we need now to make this technology available to the broadest range of people possible. So some, some part of the answer is, is also around policy. Um, but, but I do, I agree. It's a great, it's a great question. And maybe the last thing I'd say in answer to that is that we've done a number of kind of N of ones. It's sort of like, you know, I think one of the chapters, maybe I even started with this, this quote, my team were tired of me saying, you can't do two until you've done one. It is sort of a bit of a, a watchword phrase for, for us is that if something sounds not necessarily impossible, but hard, uh, because no one's really kind of done exactly that before, then, well, I mean, it's not going to become routine until you've managed to do it once. And every time you do it one more time, it becomes that, that much easier. And eventually, aspects of it become straightforward, and you can really start to build something. And that's kind of been our philosophy, but it's very much linking with collaborators and colleagues. Um, the, the book is it's a testament to collaboration and to just incredible colleagues around the world it is but also n of one could have been a decent working title for this book right <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's yeah. not like with each case was sort of in its own way a first the, the other obvious working <laughs> the other obvious thing is 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 that um you have fulfilled many childhood goals one of which is clearly to be sherlock holmes and a doctor all at once Right? Like, <laughs> you're really um, yeah yeah that's 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 a fun analogy you you bring up what was the guy who wrote the sherlock holmes stories was educated yeah conan, conan doyle yeah in fact some of that i i was a sherlock holmes fan before and certainly one part of the reason i i wanted to be a doctor and go into medicine was to try to solve hard cases solve mysteries that that was definitely part of the appeal and so much of medicine isn't that. It's much more protocol. People tend to present with common things. But uh, that's certainly one of the reasons I've been attracted to this area. But actually, a lot of the parallels in Sherlock Holmes with medicine, actually, I didn't know until I started researching the book. At some level, I knew Conan Doyle was a doctor. He's actually an ophthalmologist. And in fact, he, he was sort of a failed ophthalmologist in that he set up practice in London and you know nobody showed up. And so he was bored. And so he started writing. And I think we're all Fairly, fairly glad he did. Um, but it's also something I didn't know that the character of Sherlock Holmes was actually based on a, on a Scottish surgeon who had this, who had this, he was actually Queen Victoria's doctor, among other things, but he had this reputation, this surgeon, of being able to like watch people as they walked into his, his room and, and, and pool together their life, not just their medical life, but where they'd come from and what they did. And he used this acute sense of observation. And Conan Doyle had been exposed to this doctor and had really based the whole character of Sherlock Holmes on, on that surgeon. Um, and then there's many other parallels within the pages of, of Sherlock Holmes from the very beginning, you know, where the very first meeting with Watson and Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is busy making a blood test in a lab in, a, in the basement of a hospital, like to try and look at blood spatter after, you know, after crimes. So it was a, that was a fun part. I mean, so, so much of the, the book includes stories I was part of, and I loved going back to talk to people and share memories and try and work out, you know, what happened there again. So that was a, an amazing part. And then another amazingly fun part was, was to go sort of more deeply into some of these areas like Sherlock Holmes and, and others that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have time to in, in, in normal life, but a, a good excuse to, to try, and, try and draw those parallels for the readers of the book. So what's interesting to me is that one of the stories that had struck me, you're talking about what he could do through simple powers of observation. And I think it is important in an age where technology puts so much at our fingertips that we could be reliant on it to realize that you never get 
you know, that, that it's never irrelevant to sort of actually see the person in addition to the genome. And one of the stories which my genetic counselor soul really loved was the story about Ricky, mm. uh, because mm-hmm. here was the story of a very sick young man, and you went through the process by which you got an idea in terms of the genomics of what was going on with the disease. But the sticking point turned out to be he wasn't ready to have the surgery, which your work suggested would help him, right? So it was like that, like seeing the person more fully, not losing that aspect of observation. I think that's exactly right. And and, I mean, you put your finger right on the, to me, the most exciting thing about doing this kind of medicine is that we get, uh, the technophile in me loves the fact that we get to apply this state-of-the-art technology uh, of genome sequencing and everything that comes after it in the context of the UDN to the, to try to solve these cases. But, but the part, there are part of it that you, you articulate so well is that at the center of it, the beginning, the end and the center is a real person and that interacting with that person and their emotion and their being, uh, and then observing them in, in, <clears throat> in their world and, and talking to them and using the human side with, with zero technology. In fact, you need, you need to push technology away in order to do that appropriately uh, is, is so much an equal part of, of this. And, and so I think being able to do traditional medicine that has been around for centuries reflected in this sort of Sherlock Holmes approach um, with, uh, with the high technology is, is, I think, what makes it really exciting. Yeah. So how nerve wracking was it waiting for that young man to be ready to take that next step? It, yeah, it's we, we all have patients that, that keep us up at night, and that when we're cycling around or walking in between meetings, that the, you know their their stories pop into our heads, and we we worry about them. And yeah, in, in Ricky's case, I worry, but I still worry about him. I mean, much less now. Thankfully, he's doing very well. But um, you know, around the time and the events I described in the book, when he was considering surgery, I was considering a heart transplant, uh, and then realizing that he just wasn't ready for that. Um, and sitting down with him and realizing that no amount of medical talk was going to persuade him to for anything. I remember that day, I think I talked about it maybe in the book, we just sort of pushed the medicine aside. He came for a clinic visit, and, and I realized there was just no point, because life or death for this young man was not going to be about anything I could tell him medically or any fact I could give him or any, any rationalization around his heart. It was going to be about what does he live for, and you know what is, what really mattered to him in life. And so... I think that human aspect of, of this is, I mean, that you know, before there was ever taken, before I ever touched a computer, you know, when I was like, I think five years old, I remember wanting to be a doctor. And it was that, it was that human part that I was driven by. And it's just so amazing to be, you know, to be part of it now. But, but yeah, our, our, our patients keep us up at night. You know, sure. this is, this is reminding me uh, when my, when my oldest kid, a very long time ago was uh, maybe five years old. Uh, one of my older mm-hmm. relatives went into the hospital with heart failure. And I told her that I had to go to the hospital because Uncle Sidney uh, uh, was sick. And she said, what's wrong with mm-hmm. him? And I said, there's something wrong with his heart. And she just stopped like, and stood and her face got so upset. And she looked at me and she said, mm-hmm. he can't love. Oh, yeah. Wow. (laughs) I know. I know. And of course, like, you know, I'm a scientist. So I was like, no, the heart is a pump. But um, (laughs) like some other part of my brain was like, oh, my God, my kid understands that the worst thing that could happen to you is you can't love like that was really so moving to me. Um, But I guess when you're a cardiologist, you end up with both. That's what I was thinking about that story right yeah 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 i like like it that's right that's right you're literally trying to fix the pump but on the other hand uh you know so much of, of this and with transplant of course you know i, I tell a few stories of, of transplant in the book but uh you know just uh you know it's an incredible thing i think one of the stories even that ended up maybe in the end notes not maybe it's not in the main part but was was this story of directed heart transplantation where there was a, a father who was in his 60s and was on the transplant list and been waiting for two years. It wasn't clear he was going to get a heart. And in, in a really tragic turn of events, his daughter, who was a nurse in her 20s, died in a car accident and she was a donor. And the hospital basically called and said, do you want your daughter's heart? Oh, my God. And I, yeah, I just, 
I, and I, I mean, I'm in a heart transplant position. I, I didn't even know that was possible, honestly, <laughs> until I discovered this as part of the research for them. Well, the book that triggered was triggered by um, the story with Ricky. Um, and, and so I realized that it, it isn't a thing. Um, and uh, although he was immediately against it, first of all, eventually his whole family said, look, she's gone. This is what she would want to happen. And, and he was transplanted with his daughter's heart. And, um, you know, at the time the story was written, it had lived in, inside him for another, I think, 25 years. Just incredible. incredible. That is, um, I got chills. Yeah, that's that's some story. Mm-hmm. I would hope that, you know, in the end, that was something wonderful and sort of brought some peace to him. But it's I think hard to see it as a happy story. You know, it's just really distressing. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Okay, I'm taking this conversation. Some I, uh, Sorry get over that um uh because i want to ask you um a less emotional question so another striking thing about this era of the genomic revolution is that it arrived just as some of the walls between academia and industry were crumbling i mean that had begun back in 1980 but was certainly we're just mm-hmm. we're just seeing the fruits of that so we saw this right in the human genome project itself really when this government project was essentially hijacked by a private consortium and there was a tug of war over what could be for sale and what could not be for sale. Right. So simultaneously, since then, we've had the construction of what to me seemed like unprecedented resources, publicly accessible resources, the UK Biobank, Nomad, Clinvar, unbelievable not-for-profit resources, and also an explosion of private companies looking for that gold mine in the human genome. And you've actually, my Zelig friend, been on both sides of that. <laughs> so Silicon Valley meets um, medicine. And I was just wondering about your thoughts about, you know, wh- what, what have we been able to accomplish through industry that couldn't have happened without it? And what concerns you have maybe first talk about what we've been able to accomplish because of the industry relationships yeah it's a great it's a really great area i think for discussion but there's this in, in some ways a very simple answer and the answer is scale uh, i mean uh academia is great at so many things uh and i love I, i'm an academic i love academia uh, I, I wouldn't choose any other job. And I think in terms of the ability to innovate in a, in a sort of safe space and the ability to move in any direction and change it in any direction and, and, and go in a direction without worrying if, it, if there's a profit margin there uh, is one of the most important aspects of, of academia as well as its kind of neutrality um, and searching for truth is, is going to be really important. But, but academia is, is not the place to take finished products, scale them, get them into the market and out into the world. Academics and are bad at that, and academia is just not set up to do it. It's not our, it's not our mission. And so I think it really has to be a combination. And I, I've really welcomed, and as you mentioned in, in the book, tell, tell stories about how we've started companies and how we in Silicon Valley work closely with companies. But, but it's interesting. I noted in your question, you talked about the gold mine. It's certainly true that there are many people who start companies with the idea of making money. But in, actually, in my experience, that's a bit of a fallacy. Most of the companies, and I've been involved in a lot over these last 10 years, and many either advising, as you say, starting some, almost none of them are started by people who are primarily trying to make money. And it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, everyone in Silicon Valley trying to change the world. You know, I, but at some level, I think... Everybody everywhere is trying to change the world, usually in a positive direction. And I think thinking of, of the companies that have been put forward, most people, I think, have been driven by, in the same way we were in academia, by excitement over what the technology could bring to people's lives, the changes it could make for real people. Now, I think if Okay, I'd just like you to consider it, that you might have an ascertainment bias. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a genetic counselor, I'm happy to to be prompted by that. Um, on the other hand, I, this is an influence, even, let me say that even before I came anywhere near Silicon Valley, and maybe I have an ascertainment bias that predates Silicon Valley, but I remember I, I was doing a rotation as a resident in, in endocrinology of all places in, in Oxford, and we had a talk for reasons that just escaped me now from the head of the business school. I have no idea why. And I remember having, a, a, I was on your side of this, and he was on the other, and I remember I, 
his, his primary thesis for this medical group, and he was not a medical person in any way, was that we think in medicine that we are the only ones who come to, to work every day to make people's lives better. And his thesis was that every single person, almost everyone in business, that's their motivation. They, they don't get up and he doesn't wake up in the morning and think, I wonder how much money I can make today. Which is not to say there aren't people who do that. But his point was that most people do not. Most people, and they don't need to be in a medical faithing business like pharma, that it, it can be, in, uh, you could be a baker. You don't get up in the morning and think, I wonder how much money I'm going to make in my bakery today. You think, how much pleasure am I going to give people by baking them bread? And, and that really made me think. I mean, I honestly was very skeptical. I was a bit like, really? Business people are all about money. So when my, uh, so when my, uh, the guy I was married to at the time, and for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, was in business school, they mm -hmm. had somebody who came from Wall Street uh, to speak. And uh, he was talking about how a friend was trying to convince him to come and do a big public interest project. And he said, he goes, and he said, and my friend said to me, you have all the money in the world. You have more money than you could ever need. Come on, you don't come and do this. You don't need any more money. And he said, you're right. This is talking about himself. I don't need any more money. Pay me in juju beads. Just make sure I have more juju beads than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. So maybe well, it they would don't be want important to note. <laughs> yeah, it would be important to note there are clear exceptions uh, <laughs> to this rule. No, it's just another. It's another thing. It's it's it's. You're right. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be money, but it could be juju beads. But there is like a, I want to win. I, I I think there's a a lot of that, but. Yes, there's I, a competitive element. Although the counter to that is also, I mean, I, I not my philosophy, but I, I know plenty of colleagues in academia who who somehow see science as kind of a, a competitive sport. You know, I, I, it's, to me, it's not a zero sum game. There's plenty of discoveries for everyone, but but I know that lots of people whose primary motivation in science and academia is is, is competition. And true. so, um, yeah. Anyway, I think that what enterprise brings, you know, we can debate people's motivations, and and you know, we're not going to get anywhere ultimately uh, through that. But but I think what enterprise brings is a different level of, of finished product. And I think that in reality, um, academia just isn't isn't built to, to bring bring products to the masses, whereas enterprise is. And I think if you're an academic who has an idea that grows in your brain and you pilot it and test it and feel really excited about the impact it could make on the world, you're in almost no case going to make that impact on the world from the ivory tower of academia, you're going to need to either collaborate with, license out to, or start up some venture that will take it to the world and where a group of people will come in every day and just finish it, you know, and really spread the spread the word. And, and I think our motivation, I mean, I, I can only speak to that, but our original motivation in, in our company for sure wasn't anything to do with, with finance. It was very much, we were getting so many calls coming in with people who'd sequenced their genome or uh, you know, had data or they had a kid with a, an issue and, and they were hoping that their genome could be sequenced and maybe there could be answers. And I just couldn't cope. My academic lab, or academic labs just couldn't cope. And so that was where the, the first thought for us, right? This was, well, maybe if we had another venture that could take those calls, sequence those genomes, interpret them and, and charge a fair price for it so that they could at least break even, you know, that, that would, that would solve this problem for us. That was the original thought. Um, and of course, many twists and turns for that company personalis uh, leads it to having a major focus right now on, on immuno-oncology, which is obviously very exciting, um, but also as one of the main, major providers to, to folks like the Million Veteran Program. So they are sequencing hundreds of thousands of genomes now, which is, I think, a really exciting moment when we think back to the, the first one. Yes, it certainly is. And I, I know, speaking on behalf of all genetic counselors, how grateful we are that there are all these wonderful tools that have developed since, God damn it, it was only 2009 that we started this book, <laughs> where, I know. where you had a genome and no tools, you know, so, right. um, so, so grateful for that. I almost can't remember the time before it. Um, I'm going to stay on this question for just a little bit, just a little bit more. Uh, I don't want you to feel that, that I'm negative about the industries. I, I totally agree with your point that, and that was something I wanted to say, wanted to hear you say was that there's so much that couldn't be accomplished without, uh, the industry partnerships. That said, you know, big tech movements have taken a few swings and misses when it comes from medicine. 
And I wonder mm-hmm. if someone who has a foot in each world, if you could say something about what does Silicon Valley not get about medicine? Yeah, I think that that's, a, a, you know, there's, there's clearly an answer to that because I, and I think that part, a lot of it, most of it is that medicine isn't a data problem that can be solved. At least it's not only a data problem. There's data within medicine and, you know, we've talked about how genetics in particular seems particularly computable because of the way, um, the way the genome is, you know, four letters repeated many, many times. Uh, and so that seems very attractive to computer scientists and other data people. They understand that. And so I think that's led to major Silicon Valley name brand companies that we all know, um, thinking that they could wade into help and just apply some of the same tools that had worked so well for the world's information, let's say, and just solve healthcare. Um, and that clearly hasn't happened. And if you talk to the senior leadership at, at each of these countries, uh, companies, then they, ag- they agree that this is not something that is solved that easily. And there are many aspects that, although they've been quite high profile in, in their move in certain directions, in certain areas within medicine, there's also other areas where, at least behind closed doors, they've said, well, we can't, we're not going to go anywhere near that. That's just, we don't, that's not something that we can do. So I think what you're increasingly seeing is a more selective application of a real skill set. I mean, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning approaches, there, there is nobody better than these companies at that. But I think at the beginning, it was like, we can solve healthcare. And now it's a bit like, well, here are some specific examples of places where that technology can provide something that it couldn't before. And so I do think that, that there's a learning, there's been a learning curve and we're still in, in the middle of it where, where I think the tech companies are realizing that some problems can be solved, but, but many cannot. And I, I, you know, I wish many of those issues could be solved, but it would require a co- cooperation between, I think, government and, and industry and, and academia in order to solve some of those more fundamental healthcare issues. So I, I, it is true that within Silicon Valley, everyone thinks they can solve everything in the world. And that optimism is part of the reason Silicon Valley has been as successful as it has. But the idea that everything can be solved by the application of computers and, and data analysis is, is clearly a fallacy. And I think that we're, we're, we're learning that. So we're almost out of time. And I'm going to ask you one other crazy question, which is one of these things. It's actually from your bio, not from your book. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, all the answers to everything in the world are actually at our fingertips, right? I could have Googled this, but I didn't because sometimes the mystery is more fun than not knowing. But here I'm going to ask you anyway, the one line in your bio, he's a part of the winning team of the $75 million One Brave Idea competition. And I'm like, well, that sounds very cool. Maybe I just want to imagine what it is. Maybe I want to know. (laughs) (laughs) So at the risk of being very disappointed, Ewan, what was the $75 million One Brave Idea? (laughs) Well, well, uh, as a prelude, I, I should say this was a, a, a competition put together by the American Heart Association and Verily, the company connected with Google, and, and I think even AstraZeneca and maybe another pharma company. Uh, and the idea was to, to do grant making in, in a different way. Instead of giving small amounts, smaller amounts of money to, to large numbers of people, we said every now and again we should put all of it in a pot and give it to one team and, and see what they can do. Um, and, and so um, I was sitting, as many, most good ideas come, I was sitting in a bar with a friend of mine, a fellow Scotsman, Callum McRae from uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in, in Boston and Harvard uh, University. And we were saying, oh, this competition's coming up. Should we, should we apply? And uh, I think it, we decided that we would apply kind of together. And then in the end, we said, well, should we, should we do two? Because two shots on goal is better than one. And so I, I put one in and he put one in. And, there were multiple rounds, but in the end, you know, we were very both very fortunate to um, to be in the in the both both of our shots on goal were, were in the final. Um, the winning one was was his shot, uh, and it was uh, focused on essentially a reimagination of cardiovascular disease and thinking uh, that we we have spent very a very long time analyzing the disease as it exists when it presents, which is to say, we wait to somebody until somebody has a heart attack and then we treat them in the same way we wait till a disease is quite mature and then we analyze it. And I think the big idea was to say, if we really want to move the end goal, which is from 
reaction to to prevention and, and pro um, uh, to, to to proactive management, then we have to change the science behind that. We have to start studying the early disease, which is a really simple idea that actually has has not been where much of the focus is. Because I think when you only have a small amount of money, you go after the most severe version of the disease and you go after the disease as it, as it sort of presents. But in reality, if you want to prevent the disease, you have to focus on the very earliest origins of the disease, the very earliest, uh, yeah, or very earliest ability to pick it up. So um, obviously, for that kind of money, there's a much more detailed explanation. But but in a few words, that's that's basically what the idea was to, to essentially reinvent how we analyze a disease that we're hoping to cure by focusing on its earliest origins rather than its uh, late presentation. Very cool. And it sort of wraps up well, because it goes right back to what we were starting uh, talking about kind of at the beginning of this interview, where we were saying that the early phase of genome analysis has been incredibly helpful in terms of solving the mystery of what's going on with someone when they present with an illness, and uh, maybe has made less headway in the area of prediction, being able to identify what could go wrong in a healthy person. And uh, that's sort of what you're talking about there, right? But talking about in both places, the, yeah. the big horizon for us is being able to intervene. Um, I think that's exactly right. And that's actually, as you, as you mentioned, sort of the tipping off point of the, um, at the end of the book where we say, well, we've talked mostly about this application in rare disease and, and the, the technology and its impact there. But we really are turning a corner now, I think, with finally starting to have, I think, valid, let's say, polygenic risk scores and, and being able to understand how we should apply those in the context of one, Mendelian disease, and two, in the context of preventive genomics and in cardiovascular in particular. You know, now we, we know that those scores are as powerful as the, as the individual risk factors we ask every patient about who comes for a risk assessment in our clinic. Um, and that the combination of the two, well, big surprise, nature and nurture together are better predictors than one or the other in isolation. Uh, but that now we have the tools that uh, mean that we can have some confidence that the, the genetic part of that is actually, you know, as powerful as the traditional risk factors and, and really start to integrate both of those towards prevention of, of the very common and complex disease that is cardiovascular disease. And you see big headway for that in the next five to 10? I do. Yeah, I do. In fact, um, I've been asked every year since 2009, you know, because we actually did in that first paper do some polygenic risk scores. We, we, there were big kind of quotation marks around them, like to say, like, we're not really there yet, but this is what this could look like. Um, and every year I've been asked, well, you said that we could do this. Is it, is it time yet? And every year for pretty, pretty much a decade, I said, no, I, I don't really feel that. Um, but in this last year, year and a half, I've started to say, you know, I think we're, we're, we're there now. And you I know, I'm just laughing because when I read the section on Stephen Quake and you'd finished the, did the big presentation, there's a point where you say, we found an analysis of common genes that suggested that he might have an increased risk. And I'm like, no, not in 2009. <laughs> That's right. That's right. not right. <laughs> What were yeah, you no, telling I, I him? Don't. What was it based on? Like, no, no, 10 years too well, early. The, <laughs> right. It was based on the best evidence at the time. But he, but it was very clear. We made it very clear to him that these, these scores were not ready for, for prime time, um, the, just as the pharmacogenomics still had some way to go. Um, and just as actually our rare variant, you know, there was no, no ClinGen, no ClinVar, no... Um, nomad, you know, no, no, no exome server either, even then. So, so I think it all had large quotation marks around it. That, that first one was very much a, like, imagine what could be possible. It was, it was almost like a, it wasn't just imagination. We were doing it, but, but it was, you know, at some point, if we can put the right tools in place, that this is the power of the genome. And I think that's what caught the imagination. But, but it had some cases it's taken. And I think the last, maybe it's the last chapter I used this Bill, Bill Gates quote about how most people overestimate what they can do in one year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10. And, and that really was my sense in getting to the end of this, at the end of 10 years, that some of what we'd imagined back at Steve Quake's genome, we were now at the point where it really is time. And, and actually at Stanford this year, we were launching a preventive genomics program based on low-pass whole genome sequencing that includes in primary care, 
polygenic risk scores integrated with traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease. And so... I, I think that quote that you ch- chose from, from Bill Gates uh, about one year, 10 year is one of the most telling things to say about genomics because the timeline was pressured, right? There was a sense that this was all supposed to create giant changes in medicine overnight, which were highly unrealistic. Right. And, yeah. you know, if you ask somebody, was it a success? The answer was it underperformed five minutes out and overperformed 20 years out, right? I mean, yeah. um, that's exactly 100%. what has happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you can actually overperform that level of hype. I don't know if it's possible, but, <laughs> you know, the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and luckily, you were working with a famous Stanford PhD genius, so your consent was probably a little bit easier for under right. making sure they understood the limitations of what you were saying. So it's helpful. <laughs> it's helpful. Definitely, yeah, that was a. I it's mean, the helpful first if call your consent me. forms can rely on. You know, we're only going to talk to people who understand this at the uh, PhD level. So, right, right, right. Yeah. No, and I, but I think despite that, we actually did spend. A lot of time. I mean, Hank, Hank Greeley, who was on your podcast recently, and, and I it really enjoyed that one. You know, he he was my first call. Really, I mean, we were we were sort of talking about this as it came together. Are we going to do this analysis? And he was, you know, first out the gate, and, and Kelly Ormond came came along as well. And the two of them really built what became our platform, at least at Stanford, for the ethical basis of of our work in, in whole genomes over that whole decade was really built around Steve. And of course, he was an unusual patient. Uh, given his PhD in, in bioengineering and biophysics, and but um, but that didn't necessarily mean he had any knowledge of clinical genetics, which is really the knowledge that, that you need. He certainly, as you say, understood at molecular level what was happening, but he, it, it wasn't like the the real risks that might be hiding in his genome and that how they might be shared among he might he knew technically how they might be shared among his family, but uh, the real implications of that were not something he had spent a lot of time. No, so yeah, and then you can't happy. you can't intellectualize all this stuff too. Like you know, yeah, if it's if it's emotional, you're in the same boat as everyone else. Um, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, you and this has been so much fun. I've enjoyed this very much, and I want to say to anyone listening that I enjoyed the book very much. It's called once again the Genome Odyssey: Medical Mysteries and the Incredible Quest to Solve Them. And anybody who has lived through uh, being a part of the field of genetics um, for the last 15 years or so, it's it's beyond nostalgia. It's just like you cannot believe how 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 much it brings you back to how uh, those moments are exciting and how recent they were and how far we have traveled from them. Um, so it's 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 really a fun a fun thing to read at this moment in time. Uh, highly Thanks recommend. Thanks so much for having me. I really really enjoyed being here. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you all for listening. Go to the website, BeagleLanded.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher, all that good stuff. Take care, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.